welcome to the Cabramatta Vineyard Church podcast. We are a missional community in southwestern Sydney that desires to be a preview community of God's generous rule and reign. For more information, check out cabramattavineyard.org.au. So it's probably getting close to six months since we were in Revelation. And the last time we were together, we looked at Revelation 12. (coughs) Now, Revelation 12 is a retelling of the story of the world um, as a battle between... Uh, A woman representing the people of God, a child who is representing Jesus, and a dragon. And it turns out that the dragon, even though it's quite scary, is not strong enough to defeat the purposes of God and gets kicked out of heaven. And so when we finish Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is uh, quite angry. Verse 17 says, The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, John, you will recall, is writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches with which he has um, a key relationship. And he's operating as a prophet and a pastor. And here he's giving a warning to the people in those churches that the dragon is angry and it's coming for them. And so chapter 13 starts with the dragon looking out to sea, standing on the sand of the sea. And John says in verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, Revelation 13 is probably one of the strangest, most vivid, uh, and most misinterpreted chapters in the whole of the Bible. And it has uh, some of the bits that people who have no Christian faith, who are not Bible readers at all, uh, still know about. Notably the last verse where we get the number of the beast as 666. And so we're going to unpack this this morning and see if we can blow away a bit of the smoke and come up with what John is getting at. So John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Okay, strange creature. Ten heads, uh, sorry, ten horns and seven heads. The seven heads tells us that John is definitely thinking about Rome which if you know anything about your ancient uh, history, the city of Rome was built on 
a series of seven hills. And so the seven heads are recalling Rome. And we have ten horns, and each horn has a crown on it. That's what a diadem is. And blasphemous names written on the heads. He doesn't mention the blasphemous names because they're, well, blasphemous. But blasphemy in this context is about making claims to be God. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's, like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have had a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marvelled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So here we have a strange beast. John has very vivid dreams, although he's awake for this one. And if you're coming to Revelation 13, not ever having read the Bible, then this will seem like um, a very odd uh, picture. But if you're a Bible reader, you will automatically remember that this beast is familiar and that John is obviously meditating on Daniel and in particular Daniel 7. So keep your finger in Revelation 13 and flick back to Daniel 7. I just want to read a couple of verses to you. Now, Daniel was a guy like John who uh, had a very vivid prophetic imagination and strange, scary visions. Daniel writes, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Dan Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter Daniel declared, I saw a vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That's the Mediterranean. And the four great beasts, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings. Are four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the visions of the night, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. 
I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, now that is seriously creepy. <laughs> Alright? But Daniel um, has had several visions and dreams which prophesy the future of the uh, ancient Near Eastern world over a period of about a thousand years. And these four creatures um, are empires. Daniel lives towards the end of the Babylonian Empire and what he sees is Persia rising to take Babylon's place. That's the bear. And then there's a leopard, which represents the Greek Empire of Alexander, which defeated the Persians and took over most of the um, Mediterranean world all of the way across to India. And the scary one at the end, with the ten horns, is significant for John because this is the Empire of Rome the time at which John is living. And so what John has done in his vision, actually before we go on with that, I want you to notice what comes next in Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. So here we have this fantastic passage which is very significant in the thinking and the ministry of Jesus and all of his followers, this picture of God who gives power to one like a son of man, who then gives up his life uh, for his people and defeats the enemy and is given dominion. So that also comes out of Daniel 7. So Daniel 7 is one of the most important Old Testament pa uh, passages for understanding the thinking of Jesus and his followers. And so what John does in Revelation 13 is he takes these four empires represented by carnivorous animals which attack and devour people. That's Daniel's picture of what world empires are like and John bundles all of those together into one picture of a beast coming out of the sea because if you live in Asia Minor which is the west coast of Turkey where did the Romans come from? They came by boat from out of the sea and so John sees one empire that embodies all of these four empires of Daniel's vision. And what he's really saying is, Rome's just the latest one. And it won't be the last, there's going to be other empires. The point is, this is what empire is like. Empire is strange and scary and carnivorous, and it devours the people of the earth. Now, there are some specific things here uh, related to Rome and the recent history that uh, John and his readers have lived through because 
this uh, beast experienced a mortal wound but was healed. In other words, this beast is a parody of Jesus having died and risen again. Now, it's likely that there are two things uh, that John has in mind here. One is that in the ancient uh, Roman world, there was a persistent rumour that Nero, um, who was the Roman emperor uh, at the time when Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome, um, there is a, a myth called Nero Dividus, right? which is Nero revived. There was this belief that Nero died and then he rose from the dead. Um, this uh, was not true. Nero died and he didn't rise from the dead. But you could say that the power behind Nero was very much alive and Domitian, who was at the emperor at the time that John is writing, was often thought to be uh, the second Nero. But the other thing is that in the year when Nero died, if you know your Roman history, that was AD 69, there were four emperors. Right? There was civil war as they contested, because Nero died pretty suddenly, didn't really leave a decent successor. And so in one year, 69 CE, there's four emperors, Otho, no, he wasn't the first, Galba was the first, Otho, Vitellius, and they all, right, they all got killed. So Galba took the throne, uh, there was a battle, Otho won the battle and killed Galba, then there's another battle uh, led by the followers of uh, uh, Vitellius, um, and then uh, Vespasian, the first of the Flavian rulers, who was currently in the Middle East besieging Jerusalem, he was the most powerful of all of the Roman generals. And so he decided, well, I better take my army and come against Vitellius because I'm the one who should be emperor, not that turkey. Uh, but before he even got there, his supporters had gone to war against Vitellius, and Vitellius was torn to pieces by a mob. This was a, a civil war, which to the Roman Empire must have looked like Rome experiencing a mortal wound, thinking, there's no way this empire is going to recover from this, four emperors in a year. And yet by the time we get to John's time, it's obvious that Rome has recovered and is stronger and scarier than ever, right? It experienced a mortal wound but was healed and is now threatening us again, right? Vespasian left his son Titus in charge of the siege at Jerusalem and the next year in AD 70, Jerusalem fell, Titus went in and uh, exposed himself in front of the <coughs> altar, set up the Roman banners in the temple, and then burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. Um, probably the background behind some of the writings in Matthew 25 and Mark 13, uh, Luke 21, etc. 
those apocalyptic passages there, um, talking about the fall of Jerusalem as the evidence that God has come in judgment against his people who rejected his son. Not a picture of the end of the world as is often taken. So here we have this scary beast which receives a mortal wound and recovers. And the people of the, the earth, the whole earth in fact, worship the dragon who's the power behind the beast and worship the beast, saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it. And the beast utters blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, I want you to notice the verbs in this paragraph. They are all in the passive voice. So this is the world empire that has power over all of the people of, of the earth, over every tribe and language. And yet, where does it, give it get its power? Its power was given to it. It was allowed. This is the biblical view of providence. The empires get their power from the dragon who is devil. But this is all within the scheme of God. God is the ultimate authority. The Ancient of Days is still on his throne and he's in charge and he's not scared of the dragon. Nor is he scared of the scary beasts that the dragon keeps bringing up to come against the people of the earth. And so the dragon, uh, sorry, the dragon gives its power to the first beast um, and this beast is Rome and it's given authority to 42, 42 months. This is another reference to Daniel's prophecy. We won't go into the details of that, but that's also related to the time, times, half a time of the previous chapter, talking about three and a half years. That's 42 months. But in the biblical view, even though these scary monsters arise and take charge of the world, God is still in control. God is the one who allows these things to happen. And even in the midst of their blasphemy and their terror and their murder, God is still working out his purposes. Now you recall in chapter 7 that we had people from every tribe and language and nation worshipping before the throne and the Lamb. And here those who dwell on the earth are worshipping the beast. So chapter 13 is a parody in history of what is ultimately happening in God's purposes. All right? Revelation 7 is the true story of what is happening and what will happen. Revelation 13 is a parody, and not only that, there is also a parody of the Trinity. 
because we have a dragon and we have two beasts. A beast that comes out of the sea and another beast that comes from the land. Now the ones who worship the beast and the dragon are the people of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. But this beast does have real power so that if anyone is taken captive, into captivity he goes. And if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And how should the people of God, those whose names who are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, if anyone has ears to hear, here is a call for patient endurance and faithfulness. Right, the ESV says the faith of the saints. It's not about believing that we're going to get through. It's about faithfulness yeah. under pressure. Yeah. Faithfulness in the... Uh, in the face of the overwhelming might um, of empire. And so John looks and he sees another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So here we have a parody of the son, of the lamb who was slain, the lamb on the throne. This second beast is all about propaganda, religious and social power. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and it makes the earth and its, its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven uh, to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So here we have a second beast who is pretending to be Jesus, pretending to be the son, the lamb who was slain. John has in mind the cult of the emperor. In the Roman world, they conquered most of Europe, North Africa, the Middle East. Uh, they were having a bit of trouble with the Parthians on their northwestern border um, and some of the Germanic tribes. So in order to maintain control and try and bring a sense of unity to the empire, uh, one of the Prime Minister's advisors, you know, those people who have incredible influence but don't get elected by us, came up with the bright idea, what if we were to call you a god? 
and get the, the cities and the nations that we've conquered to build temples where Caesar can be worshipped. This is the second beast. It's the worship of the emperor. It's a political device. It's unlikely that these guys actually thought they were divine. But this is a very powerful tool in a gullible world where worship of lots and lots of different things was normal. Now, like the rulers of Egypt, uh, sorry, the magicians of Egypt, this beast is able to perform signs, and John doesn't tell us what those signs are. It does mention uh, bringing fire down from heaven, like Elijah called God's fire down on Mount Carmel. Um, we don't get the details, and we don't have historical records, so we don't really know uh, what happened. The point is that this creature uses signs to deceive the people and trick them into worshipping the first beast and the dragon. This is false worship and it's a parody of the true worship of the king that we saw in chapter 7. And the problem for humans, of course, is that we become like whoever it is that we worship. We take on the characteristics of whatever it is that we worship, which is why it is so important that we make sure that we don't compromise and that we give our worship to the one true God and to his son. So, in verse 16, now we get to the bit that gets a bit strange. This beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man and it is his number, 666. Six, six. Right, that would look good on the number plate, wouldn't it? <laughs> so what is this mark and this number? Um, you can find plenty of uh, credible uh, and influential churches in, in the United States in particular that will have constructed elaborate theologies and stories around this or you could read the books of Tim LaHaye um, in the Left Behind series and the dodgy movies that were made of that. Um, if you've seen those movies, try to wipe them out of your mind because they're not true. That's not what John was thinking about, and that's not the way it's going to work. Right Now, I'm not disputing that it's impossible that there could be another world empire that uses a, a guillotine, just that uh, Tim LaHaye has a vivid imagination and a very dodgy grasp of theology. The mark of the beast... 
sorry. Oh, yeah, I think she liked his earlier works. I doubt that she's read the no, Left Behind series. <laughs> Fortunately. So who is this second beast? This second beast rises out of the earth. It comes from the land. So for John's audience, um, this beast has the power to deceive and compel people to worship the first beast and the dragon. You remember when we uh, went through the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, that the threat doesn't come directly from Rome, it comes from the local leaders and the influential people in the towns and cities where the churches are located, who are the ones who enforce the edicts of Rome. And particularly in Asia Minor, some of these local rulers were very enthusiastic to try and get favour from the emperor by building a temple to the emperor and making sure that anybody in the town participated in the cult of the emperor. So in other words, in these cities where the seven churches are located, there are temples to the emperor and there is very strong social pressure to participate in the cult because not participating in the cult threatens to uh, bring down the wrath of the gods or worse still, the wrath of the god Caesar against the city. So people who refused to participate in the emperor cult were socially ostracised because they were seen by their friends and neighbours as a threat to civil order and prosperity. The mark of the beast on the forehead and the right hand is talking about visibility. We shouldn't look for um, our government wanting to have our ID card printed like a barcode on our right hand or on our forehead. Yes, that has been discussed and mooted as one of the possibilities. And do we have the technology? Of course we do. That's not what it's about. Right? It's about empire being able to compel its people to participate in its blasphemies on pain of ostracism, or in this case, even on pain of death. John here is standing in his role as a prophet and warning his friends and the people that he's pastoring that things are about to get much, much worse. That though they've been living under pressure to compromise or under the pressure of persecution, that it's about to get worse and some of them are going to face death if they refuse to compromise with the worship of the first beast. Right, which is participation in the cult of the emperor. So the mark of the beast is simply the social pressure brought to bear by uh, the local authorities and the people who are wanting their town to prosper to put on the Christians to participate in the cult. What harm is it going to do? Nobody believes 
Pharaoh's a god, uh, Caesar's a god, but just go along with it because then our town will look good. We will thrive and you'll get rich. Now, as to the number, it is generally accepted that the number 666 um, is the name of Nero, so Nero Caesar in Hebrew numerology. So in the ancient world, in lots of uh, um, numerolo numerological schemes, the alphabet was also used for their numbers. So in Hebrew, Aleph is one, Bait is two, Gimel is three, etc. Go through the alphabet. Each letter is assigned a number. Right? For us, A, 1, B, 2, C, 3, etc. And so you can figure out the number of your name by finding the number that the letters of your name represent, adding them all up. And if you do that in Hebrew with Nero Caesar, guess what number you come up with? It's 666. So this is the number of his name in Hebrew. Now, Nero, of course, is dead, but the empire that Nero represents is still very much alive and behaving much the same as Nero did when he was in charge. Now, what does this mean for us? I hope I've cleared up some of the misconceptions there. Does anyone have any questions about the details, the bits there? Right, is this a plausible reading of Revelation 13? See, it's not as mysterious. Well, it's scary, but it's not as doesn't need to be as mysterious as we yeah. thought it was. But I like the basic physical like, explanation for it. Like, this yes. is the kingdom that this was. <coughs> Yeah. <coughs> now, Neil Postman, in his very insightful book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, Neil Postman was a Washington Post uh, writer, Washington Post or New York Times. Anyway, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Um, if you haven't read Amusing Ourselves to Death, it's still worth the trouble, even 25 years later. He reflects on the difference between George Orwell's novel 1984 and Aldous Huxley's um, book Brave New World. 1984, Orwell is worried about the power of empire to use its power to coerce its citizens and it pictures, if you haven't read this, this big brother uh, and this surveillance culture where the people of the earth are continuously under surveillance the whole time um, and they've got to be careful what they say because if they say the wrong thing they're going to get uh, arrested and roughed up. Alice Huxley portrays a similarly dystopian uh, future but in Huxley's world the people are not controlled by a coercive, powerful and dangerous state. They're controlled by gratuitous sex, drugs and meaningless entertainment. 
And Postman writes in his book, in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What all will feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned out in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Who do you think got it right? Now, in actual fact, to a certain extent, there are both things true, but there's no empire today, is there? Right, the point of John's vision is that empire always exists and it always behaves in the same way, to coerce and seduce and to devour the people of God. And John warns us that there are two responses that are required from God's people. In the face of the first beast, in verse 10 we're told, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. But verse 18 tells us, in the face of the second beast, this calls for wisdom. Right? Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Because it is the number of a man and his number 666, one less than the number of God, which is 777. John wants us to understand that the, though the empire is coercive and all-powerful and uh, threatens to seduce, well, it tries to seduce first, and if it can't seduce, it will coerce, it's still human. It's not God. Yeah. And so we as God's people are warned not to conform to the values and the patterns of empire. Because this is idolatry. Now for us, it's greed. Nationalism. Racism. Maybe manifesting in the form of xenophobia or people wanting us to deny rights to our indigenous people or to turn a blind eye to the growing inequality that all of our governments, whether they claim to be left or right, facilitate and accelerate. 
Right, I recall a memorable, uh, candid clip of George Bush Jr., George W. Bush, coming into a fundraising de uh, deal and saying, it's wonderful tonight to be among the haves and the have-mores. And this is the world in which we live, because this is, happens in Australia as well. The haves and the have-mores are in charge and our government serve them. As the church, we are called to stand with and live among the ones who are left out, the ones who have no say. And John warns us that if we do this, there's trouble coming. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast. Now this is not the end of the story, but we're not going to end the story this morning. But next week we will have a look at chapter 14 and maybe chapter 15 as well. Because our purpose over the next few months is to bring this series on Revelation to a conclusion. And so we will be doing that over May and June maybe a little bit into July, we'll see how we go. And so I hope that you will keep a tag in your Bible. And before you come to church each Sunday, read over the next bit. Because it's helpful if we come with it fresh in our mind and it's been there ticking over thinking, I wonder what this means. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are just as susceptible as everyone else at being deceived and seduced by the attractions of empire with its power and influence and prosperity. And we ask for you to grant us wisdom to, ne to know how to see the power of the dragon. How to recognise the voice of the dragon in the one who looks like a lamb. not to be fooled, and also to have the wisdom to counsel those people in our lives who are being seduced or frightened by this power, that there is a greater God who is seated on the throne in great glory and whose purposes will be fulfilled in our lives and in his world. And we ask that you will help us to work towards this better world. 
when new creation comes and the king receives his due. to dig into these tricky passages. <laughs>